Well, I thought that I had hit the record button at the beginning of this past Sunday's Sunday School lesson, but apparently I failed at that simple task. I should have listened to my wife. How many times have I said that? Uh, she suggested that I begin recording at the beginning of Sunday School, then just trim off all the announcements and uh, song and everything leading up to the lesson, uh, which sounds like a lot better idea right now as I sit here to record the lesson that was taught this past Sunday than it did at the time when she brought up the suggestion. I think we'll be doing that in the future. But here we are again with the lesson from this past Sunday, and hope this will be a help and a blessing to you. We're going to start with a passage from the book of Luke and chapter number one, and this passage is going to lead us into a new series of lessons that will span the course of several months. We'll tell you what that is as we get there in the lesson. Luke chapter number one, this is from the introduction to the book of Luke. The Bible says the first four verses of this chapter, for as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having a perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. So this third of the four gospel accounts, the purpose for its writing is given here in the introduction to the book, and the purpose was to solidify the understanding of the early believers in regard to the person of Jesus Christ. It was to give them certainty as to what they believed about who Jesus was and what Jesus did in the New Testament Christianity that he established. You see, these believers were bound together by some things that they most surely believed, and those things were declared, but then those things were recorded so that we could have certainty regarding those things. Now, the application for this principle extend or for this principle extends far beyond uh, the gospel record recorded here by Luke. The same can be said for the Bible as a whole. God gave us a Bible because he wants us to be certain about the things that we believe. And because God gave us a Bible, we can be certain about what it is that we believe. And, and we have to understand that what we believe is certainly important if, if you are saved, if you are born again, if you are on your way to heaven, all of that is owing to something that you believe. What must I do to be saved? The, the jailer asked in Philippi Acts 16.30. The answer came, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Romans 10, With the heart man believeth unto righteousness. And so what you believe is very important. What you believe ultimately will determine your eternal destiny. But uh, as we said in Luke chapter 1, verse 1, these early believers, they were bound together by what they believed. And the same is true of 
of, of, of the church as a whole, more specifically as individual local assemblies here at the Bible Baptist Church, we are unified by our particular set of beliefs. Those are summarized in something that is called a doctrinal statement. And every church has one, or at least should have one. A Christian school, any type of Christian organization, they will have what is called a doctrinal statement or a statement of faith. And it, it, it it's very important. It's a summary of the foundational beliefs of that church or school or organization or whatever. Here at the Bible Baptist Church, we don't try to hide it. We're very upfront about it. It's clearly posted on our website. Every visitor gets a packet uh, that contains our doctrinal beliefs. Again, those are the beliefs that unify us as a church. We want people to come who want to come to a church that believes what we believe. And so in our Sunday school lessons for the next several months, we are going to break down that doctrinal statement of the Bible Baptist Church. We're going to take it step by step, uh, paragraph by paragraph, statement by statement. These are the core, the most foundational uh, doctrinal positions uh, that unify us as a church. And the, and, and, and the reason we're going to study this is so that we can then go to the Bible and see where those beliefs and those doctrines come from. Because it is imperative and it is important that each of us, and especially young people, especially teenagers, especially those that are uh, looking to chart their course in life, it is imperative that you know not just what you believe, and I'm speaking to you as an individual, you've got to figure it out for yourself. You need to know what you believe, but you had better know why you believe it. Okay, 2 Timothy 2.15 is our next passage. In 2 Timothy 2.15, the Bible says, study to show thyself approved unto God. A workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Here's what I'm challenging you to do. I'm challenging you to figure out for yourself what you believe. And that's going to take more than coming to church on Sunday and hearing a preacher preach a sermon. It's going to take more than attending Sunday school and the Sunday morning service. It's going to take more than uh, coming to church three times a week. You're going to have to, to, to make a personal investment of time and effort to really dig into God's Word and decide for yourself the things that my preacher says. Do I really believe those things? The things that my parents have taught me since the time I was a child. Uh, have I internalized that? Do I really believe it? And if I believe it, why do I believe it? And if I believe it, can I demonstrate? Can I articulate? Can I communicate those beliefs? Can I defend those positions from the scripture? It's important that you're able to do that, and I am challenging you to do that because, because what you believe is going to be challenged. It's going to be challenged. You go to school, they're going to challenge your beliefs, whether it's a a public school or a Christian school, a high school, later on a, a college, university, you can't expect your beliefs as a Christian, as an independent Bible-believing Baptist. 
you can expect your beliefs to be challenged. You you get out in that world, you go to work, you get a job, in, in, in whatever place, in whatever arena, your beliefs are going to be challenged. And when your beliefs are challenged, what your preacher said is not going to be sufficient. What your parents told you isn't going to be good enough. You are going to have to have had to make up your own mind. You need to be firmly established and grounded in the truth. You need to know what's most surely believed among us, Luke chapter 1 verse 1, and you need to be certain about those things, Luke chapter 1 verse 4. And the only way to be certain is to see in the Bible where they come from and thus to be convinced. Now, 2 Timothy chapter 3, next chapter in verse Number 13, the Bible says this, But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Uh, it, is, it is disheartening. It is concerning to see the direction that our society, that our country is going. It's been going for a long time and is only going faster each day. Um, but it doesn't fill me with doubt and despair. It fills me with confidence that the Bible is true. This is exactly what God predicted. Evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse. When you read the headlines, when you see a news clip, all you can you can conclude the Bible is true. What's a Christian to do? Verse 14. But continue thou in the things. Now listen to how this message matches the Luke passage, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Okay, so in Luke, there were some things that were declared that were most surely believed, but then they were recorded by Luke to give certainty. Timothy is told, continue in what you heard. Continue in what you've been made sure about, but how was he made sure, verse number 15, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation, which is in Jesus Christ. So the first section of our doctrinal statement and where we'll start for this series of lessons is what our church, what the Bible Baptist Church, believes about the scriptures. What do we believe about the word of God? Here's the statement. We believe in the absolute authority of, of the Holy Scriptures. We believe the original manuscripts were given by inspiration of God and were without error. We believe the God who gave his word to man has taken upon himself the responsibility for its preservation. We believe the incorruptible word of God, which cannot pass away, is available to the English-speaking world in the authorized King James Version. This Bible is our final authority in all matters. And that's a loaded paragraph and a lot of ground to cover. It's going to take us probably at least four weeks to break this down. We, we won't spend that much time on each section of the doctrinal statement, but we've got to start here and we've got to, uh, we got to take our time with it. For, for today's lesson, we'll start with this, the inspiration and preservation of scripture. We believe the original manuscripts given by inspiration of God and we're without error. But not just that, we believe the God who gave his word to man has taken upon himself the responsibility for its preservation. So inspiration 
and preservation, and those two go hand in hand. Inspiration refers to how God gave his word to man in the first place. We're talking about the originals. You'll hear that term, the original autographs, the original writings. Those are the very documents penned by men like Moses and David and Paul and John and Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and the others. Inspiration. But where inspiration is how God gave his word in the first place, preservation is how we have those words in our hands today. Inspiration, that's, that's the originals were given by inspiration of God, but preservation, those, those documents, those manuscripts, those writings, they were copied and they were kept and preserved and later translated so that what I have in my hands today in the authorized King James Version of the Holy Bible, what I have today is the inspired Word of God because what was inspired is preserved, so what's preserved is inspired, and I can be confident that I have God's very words without error. Let me give you this statement and think about what it means. Inspiration without preservation is a divine waste of time. What good would it have been for God to give his word to man and, and, and anybody with any, um, any level of, of true Christianity believes that the word God gave to man was perfect and infallible and without error. That's inspiration. But what good would inspiration be? What, what good would it be for God to give his word to men who recorded it centuries ago if he did not if he did not ensure that we'd be able to have his words in our hands today. Here's the fact of the matter. Those originals, they no longer exist. They have long since been lost. There, There's not a one of them that is extant today. We don't have the original manuscript of any book from Genesis to Revelation. But how do we still have the word of God? because the God who inspired his word promised to preserve it. Now, we're going to try to quickly cover both of these concepts, very important concepts, in our lesson. The next verse in 2 Timothy chapter 3 um, establishes the doctrine of scriptural inspiration. 2 Timothy 3.16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's probable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. The most common definition we're given for the word inspiration is, is that God breathed the scriptures, inspired, that has to do with breath, the, the idea being God breathed the words. God's words, not man's words. Men wrote them down, of course but God gave them the words that they recorded. Now, uh, there's an illustration of the definition in the only other time the word is used in Scripture, and that's in the book of Job, chapter 32 and verse number 8. Listen to what this says, Job 32 and verse number 8. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. There's a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Let's 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 compare this with man's creation in Genesis chapter two, verse seven. 
Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So, so God had formed and fashioned the body of the man. Man is a tripartite being, spirit and soul and body. So here's this body that's formed, but when does that body receive life? When does man become a living soul? When God breathes life into that man. That's inspiration. God breathed life into the man. So the Bible, it's a living book. It's a supernatural book. It's a miraculous book, a book that is unlike any other. Why? Because God breathed the words. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And the Bible is very clear about this. The Bible is clear in its claim to be not the words of men, but the words of God. 163 times the Bible uses the phrase, thus saith the Lord. 258 times the Bible uses the phrase, the word of the Lord. The the analogy is an attorney who sits in his office and hires a secretary so that he can dictate a letter to his secretary. He's speaking, she's writing, she writes the words, she types the words, she prints the words, but when she prints the letter, she does not sign it herself, though she is the one who wrote the words down she brings it to the attorney who dictated the letter so that he can sign the letter. Even though he didn't write it, she wrote it, but the words are his. He signs the letter. He's the one who gave her the words to write down. So Moses, he wrote down the Pentateuch. David wrote down the Psalms. Isaiah wrote down his prophecy. Luke penned a gospel record. Paul uh, penned the epistles. John recorded the Revelation But God signed his name at the bottom because those words that these men wrote down are the very words of God. That is inspiration. Now, that belief, if if that's what you believe, and you need to figure out whether or not you do, if that's what you believe, that belief is going to be challenged. If it hadn't been challenged already, it's going to be challenged. Someone, somewhere, whether it's a witnessing encounter or an acquaintance or a friend or someone you're sitting in class with or going to work with, try to witness to them, you talk about Christianity, you talk about the Bible, and they're going to say, you can't believe the Bible, that's just a book that was written by men, which they learned from a book that was written by men, and yet they fail to see the irony. Now, again, if if by written by men you mean that men wrote the words down, of course. But if written by men you mean that man came up with it, well, the person who says that is just proving they've never spent any time in it at all uh, because there is ample evidence that man could not have come up with this book. 1,600 years, 40 authors, three different languages, uh, a wide array of topics, no contradictions, no errors, complete unity. It has to be the work of God. And and our purpose today is not all the evidences for the inspiration of Scripture, but simply the fact that the Bible claims to be inspired. Second Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter number 1. In verse 19, I'm sorry, verse 12. 
2 Peter 1, verse 12, Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Peter said, I'm going to keep going over this over and over and over again. Why? I, I'm going to declare the things surely bleed among us. Why? So you can be certain about those things, Peter says. So what did he do? Verse 13, Yea, I think it meet as long as, in, as I am in this tabernacle, a reference to his body, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. You don't have to hear something new every time you come to church, every time you come to Sunday school. You need to hear the same things over and over and over and over again. That's what Peter says here, verse 14, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as the Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. Peter said, I'm, I'm going to do as much as I can before I die, because I'm going to die, and, and the Lord showed me it's going to be soon. Moreover, verse 15, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my decease, to have these things always in remembrance. Now, how's Peter going to do that? How is Peter going to keep reminding them of the truths that they had heard, the truths that they knew, the truths wherein they were established, how is he going to continue reminding him of those things after he puts off his tabernacle, after he dies? Well, he penned the book that we're reading now 2,000 years later. The reason that, that, that the Lord had the apostles record these epistles and the reason that God preserved them is so that we today could surely believe the same things that they believed. That authority was vested in the scriptures that God inspired. It's not just oral history. It's not just passed down from generation to generation. It, it's in black and white in a book that God used men to write down. That's inspiration. Verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice, which came from heaven, we heard when we were with him in the Holy Mount. Peter is recounting his experience atop the Mount of Transfiguration where he saw things that you and I have never seen and he heard things that you and I have never heard. He heard the audible voice of God thundering down from heaven and saying, My beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. He saw Jesus Christ in his radiant glory with his garments white and glistering. Doesn't matter how much pizza you eat before you go to bed. You haven't seen that. You're not going to see that. Not in this life on the earth. Peter said, we, we saw and heard some incredible things. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Having a Bible is better than hearing the audible voice of God. Uh, you've misheard things before. Having the Bible is better than seeing a vision of, of the Lord Jesus himself, your eyes can play tricks on you. We have a more sure word of prophecy. More sure than what? More sure than what Peter experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration. How did we get that? Verse 20, knowing this first, no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. The scriptures, when, when these men sat down to write, they didn't write what they wanted to write. They wrote what God wanted them to write. 
For the prophecy came not in all time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's that's the way we use the word inspired. We see a movie or we hear a speech or we read a book and we say, oh, I'm so inspired. That inspired me. That, 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 that person is such an inspiration. What do we mean? We mean we've been moved emotionally. We've been affected. We've been influenced. We've been compelled or motivated uh, to, to do something. Now think of that definition of inspire and and relate that to 2 Peter 1 and 2 Timothy 3. To inspire from a modern dictionary to exert an animating, enlivening, or exalting influence upon. That's what God did to the scriptures. To influence, move, or guide by divine or supernatural inspiration. That's what God did to the scriptures. To bring about or to occasion. That's what it means to inspire. God brought this book about. To communicate to or through an agent supernaturally. So what does it mean that all scripture is given by inspiration of God? It means that the holy men of old were moved by the Holy Ghost, that God brought the book about. It's his words that were communicated. He guided and directed the recording of his words by the hands of men. That's inspiration, and we believe in the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures because it's very clearly uh, declared in the Word of God. We believe the original manuscripts were given by inspiration of God and were without error. But the same passage that establishes the doctrine of inspiration also introduces the doctrine of preservation. Back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter number 3. Again, preservation. This being the means whereby God makes available to us today, thousands of years later, the inspired scriptures that he moved men to record. Back up in verse 14, But continue thou, Timothy, in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Well, where did Timothy learn these things? He was taught by his mother and his grandmother. How did they teach him? Verse 15, That from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise in salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. Now, from what scriptures did Timothy learn these things that he was to continue in according to this letter that Paul wrote? Well, it wasn't the letter that Paul wrote. It wasn't, it wasn't canonized yet. It wasn't put uh, disseminated yet. It, it wasn't part of the Bible yet. The, the scriptures Timothy had in the first century were the Old Testament scriptures, Right? Beyond that, Timothy did not have access to any of the originals that were inspired. My wife took a speech class at Stetson University here in DeLand, and she was in speech class with a one of her classmates who was a religious studies major who gave a speech one day um, trying to explain from the Bible why fornication does not mean sex outside of marriage. It's okay to have sex outside of marriage so long as you're monogamous. He was trying to make that point uh, from the Bible. As you can imagine, he, he, he failed miserably, but he, he cited the originals constantly throughout his uh, speech. And it was the job of the audience, the other classmates, to you know, ask questions, evaluate the speech, and so forth. So at the end of the speech, my wife raised her hand and said, you kept mentioning the originals where did you get them? And he said, oh, they're in the Stetson Library. 
Here's a, here, here's a guy paying six figures for a college degree in religious studies who thinks that the originals are in the Stetson Library. Guess what? They're not. They're not. None of the originals exist. So what did Timothy have? Timothy had copies. He didn't have the originals. He had copies. Further, Timothy didn't just have copies. Uh, Timothy is from Lystra, Acts 16. Timothy's father is a Greek. It is highly likely, almost certain, that, that the scriptures Timothy had access to and the scriptures Timothy learned from, they were in Hebrew. They were in Greek. So not only were they copies, they were translations. And yet, what did God say about those scriptures? From a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, all scripture is, present tense, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. So you need to be careful about this because you're going to want to go to a Christian college or one day you're going to move away and try to find a church and you're going to pull up their statement of faith or their doctrinal statement. It's going to sound real good when this institution or this church says, we believe uh, in the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures. We believe that the Bible was given by inspiration of God. But this is going to follow that up with, in the original autographs. You need to be careful about that because if you don't follow that statement with a belief in the preservation of Scripture, what you're saying is, we believe God gave his perfect word to men thousands of years ago, but we don't have those words anymore. It was perfect when it was written down, but what was originally written down, uh, it's been lost to history. We don't have the originals. So again, inspiration without preservation is pointless. It's meaningless. To say, I believe in the inspiration of the originals and to stop there is to say nothing concerning our confidence that we can have the Word of God today. Come to Psalm 12. Let's look at the passage on the preservation of Scripture. Psalm 12 and verse number 6. The words of the Lord are pure words. What does that mean? Well, it means they're holy, but it means more than that. Pure means that nothing else is added in. Pure means it's 100% what it is. Pure means unadulterated, without any admixture, as, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You, you heat that silver. Why? To get the dross out so that there's nothing there but silver. That's pure silver. The Word of God, it is the pure Word of God. There's nothing there but the Word of God. It was not tainted by the men that God used to write it down. Yes, He, he used their, their, their unique backgrounds and He used their unique styles and he, 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 he used their unique personalities, but, but what is there? It's 100% the Word of God. The words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times. Verse 7, thou shalt keep them. Don't let anybody tell you the them refers to people, the generation that follows. The them refers to the words. What is God going to keep? The words of the Lord. Thou shalt keep them. Thou, 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 God. God said he would keep them. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation 
forever. He's not going to allow man to taint it, to corrupt it, to lose it, to... Uh, uh, to allow errors to, to, to infiltrate it. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. That is the God who inspired scriptures taken upon himself, the responsibility for its preservation. I have confidence that God gave his word without error in spite of the errors of the men he used to write it down. Uh, the authors of the books in the Bible, they were not perfect men. They were imperfect men. They were sinful men. So I'm not confident in the men God used to inspire the scripture, and I'm not confident in the men God used to preserve the scripture anymore, and I'm confident in the men he used to inspire the scripture. The fact that he used imperfect men to preserve it doesn't bother me any more than the fact that he used imperfect men to inspire it. These arguments, well, copyists, well, translators, well, scribal errors, well, thou shalt keep them. O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. Let me give you a comparison. Jude chapter 1, and in verse number 1, we have a doctrine that is dear to uh, New Testament Christianity. It's the doctrine of the eternal security of the believer. Once saved, well, that condition cannot be changed. Why? Jude 1 verse 1, Jude the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ, and called. Do you know why I'm confident that I'm going to heaven because I trusted Jesus Christ, though I have often failed him since that time? Because 1 Peter 1.5, I am kept by the power of God. 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. The Bible says we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Jude 1.1 calls it, preserved in Jesus Christ. He's the one who keeps me saved. I'm glad that's not my responsibility, else I'd be a lost man this afternoon. Okay, So if God is powerful enough to keep my soul, then certainly he's powerful enough to keep his word. To say that I believe in the in the eternal security of the believer, but then to not believe in God's power to preserve his perfect, inspired, and errant word for mankind today, that's to believe that your soul is more important than God's word. What did the Lord say about that in Psalm 138.2? He magnified his word above his very name. If God's word is more important than his name, surely God's word is more important than my soul. If he's keeping my soul, I am confident. I have no doubt he can keep his word. Well, men have corrupted it. I've corrupted me. And yet God keeps me saved. Men have attacked God's word. And yet God keeps it and preserves it. A few cross-references that we'll just mention and and not teach this morning, Psalm 119 and verse number 160. Thy word is true from the beginning. Inspiration. Righteous judgments endure forever. That's preservation. Isaiah 40, verse number 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Away. Praise the Lord. That's preservation. 
Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, one final verse and one final term in our consideration of the doctrines of inspiration and preservation. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse number 5. The Bible says every, every word of God is pure. So, so the words of the Lord are pure words, Psalm 12, 6. How many of them? Every one of them. So we believe in what is referred to as verbal plenary inspiration. Verbal, that is, we believe the words are inspired, not just the general concept, not just the general idea, not just the, 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 the vague um, entirety of, we don't just have the idea of the Word of God, we have the very words of God. We believe in verbal inspiration, every word of God is pure. And then just to just to double down on that, we believe in verbal plenary inspiration. That is every word, not just most of the words, not just some of the words. No, every word of God is inspired. Every word of God is preserved. Because God preserved his word, I have his inspired words. Now, let me ask you this, young person. What do you believe about the Bible? Do you believe that God gave his word perfect and without error? Do you believe in inspiration? Do you believe that God kept his words that you can have it today, the very words of God? Do you believe that book you hold in your lap is inspired scripture? Do you believe in preservation? Now, I hope you do. I hope that's what you've been taught but you better figure it out for yourself. Do you believe that? And why do you believe that? And could you explain that to somebody? All scripture give administration God, profit for doctrine, proof, correction, instruction, righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Uh, that's God's intent and design. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. What, a, what an amazing book. What an incredible book miracle. Thank you for the men you used to record inspired scripture. Thank you for the men that you've used throughout history, the men and women you've used throughout history to keep your promise, the promise you made to preserve your words. Lord, help us to take heed, as Peter said, to this more sure word of prophecy. Give us faith, confidence, trust in your word. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.